Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am excited to have with me today Dr. Allison Russo, who's an assistant professor of neuroanesthesia here at Johns Hopkins. And we are going to do what I think will be a really useful episode on introduction to anesthesia for craniotomy surgery. Allison is a fantastic educator and clinician, and I've known her for a while and finally convinced her to come on the show. Allison, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Jed. I'm looking forward to telling our our listeners a little bit more about craniotomies. Great. All right. So let's jump right in. Why don't we just be very basic, and Allison, tell me, what is a craniotomy? So craniotomies, and um, when we talk about them for neuroanesthesia, are essentially when the neurosurgeons determine that there's some sort of intracranial pathology that needs to be addressed surgically. Um, the, the procedures that we typically do here at Hopkins are tumor resections. These can be meningiomas, glioblastomas, acoustic neuromas, pituitary adenomas. Uh, the other procedures that we could do intracranially are also things like aneurysms. We clip quite a few aneurysms here and, and certainly elsewhere as well. Um, there are other procedures that we do, um, intracranial embolizations, but craniotomies are in particular are when the surgeons go in surgically and remove part of the skull in order to access the intracranial compartment. Okay, great. So let's talk about, uh, and again, the main idea here is going to be to help people understand how to do this anesthesia. So why don't we start with preoperatively? What are some things that you think of when you're thinking about a patient or evaluating a patient preoperatively before a craniotomy surgery? And I'll just say up front that you and I have talked, and I know that you're going to give us some details on specific surgeries, specific procedures, and how you approach those later. So at the beginning, we're going to talk about generality. So you're going to help me just understand what is the general pre-op evaluation, then we'll do kind of a general intra-op portion, and then you'll give specifics about surgery. So when you think generally, when you're pre-op, pre-oping a patient for a craniotomy, what do you think about? So thank you. So there are several things that I typically think about and, and that I typically want to know based on chart review um, in our electronic record. Uh, the first thing that I think about is what procedure is, is the patient having? So it's for me, it's important to understand what procedure the patient's undergoing so that that will help me determine what the surgical approach is going to be and how my anesthetic plan is going to play into that. Um, some of the procedures are performed while patients are supine. Some are performed while the patient is prone or in park bench position. And we do have specific anesthetic considerations for those patients who we're going to be turning prone under anesthesia. We need to be very aware of how we place our lines, how we position our monitors, so that we can easily get that patient into the prone position um, without tangling our lines and monitors too much. Um, We also sometimes have patients in park bench positioning, and on some institutions, patients are also in a sitting position for a craniotomy, and that brings its own considerations from an anesthetic perspective as well. So so understanding the procedure where a tumor is or an aneurysm is can be very important um, in that regard. Um, The other consideration in terms of the procedure itself is that we want to have a basic understanding of um, what to anticipate in terms of what the surgeons may need in terms of neuromonitoring during the case. Um, So understanding the procedure may help with that. And Allison, let me ask you, so neuromonitoring is something that is uh, we could do and maybe will do an entire podcast on. Um, So I don't want to get too deep into it, but um, just very basically, when we say neuromonitoring, we're talking about 
some way to know if any either ascending sensory or descending motor pathways are damaged during the case by monitoring those pathways. That's correct. So what we typically look for are somatosensory evoked potentials or SSEPs, and those are going to be monitoring the ascending sensory pathways. Um, We also look at the descending motor evoked potentials or MEPs to monitor the descending um, pathways through the spinal cord. There are other things that we look at with specifically with intracranial aneurysms or carotid procedures. We look at uh, EEG, and for some spine procedures, we also look at EMG. Um, But we can certainly talk about that more in a later podcast. Great. All right, so you've talked about kind of the importance of knowing the procedure, what's it going to be, what are the neuromonitoring needs. What do you want to know about the patient? So in terms of the patient's medical history... um, Aside from understanding their basic comorbidities, I also want to know about their neurologic status. So what symptoms do they have? What brought them in to seek medical treatment in the first place? How have those symptoms progressed? What kind of treatment has the patient already received? So I tell my residents that it's very important to understand what their baseline neurologic deficits are, um, as we need to understand this for when we're going into the surgery, what kind of neurologic deficits they have, and when they wake up, what kind of neurologic deficits are we expecting? So um, a patient who has known left-sided weakness at baseline um, that's still present at the end of the case is much less concerning to me than a patient who has new left-sided weakness at the end of the case as the patient's emerging from anesthesia, um, as that may suggest the patient had a stroke intraoperatively. So understanding their preoperative condition is very important from a neurologic standpoint. And is that going to be based on a thorough neuro exam preoperatively? Correct. So not only do I look at the surgeon's note to get a sense of what the surgeons are noting, but I always do my own neurologic exam preoperatively, at least a basic cursory exam, and talk to the patient to find out what they've been experiencing because sometimes the symptoms may be transient. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So thorough uh, reading of the surgeon's note to see what their exam has been, talking to the patient to make sure you understand what their symptoms have been, and then doing your own exam. Um, Okay, and then what's next? What else do you want to know? So I also look at labs. Um, What's the patient's baseline labs? What EKGs? What other studies have they had that may be pertinent to your patient prior to going to the operating room? Um, For intracranial procedures, I pay very close attention to their baseline starting hemoglobin, their coagulation status, and any um, electrolytes. Um, for for anything intracranially, we are very concerned about oxygen carrying capacity to the brain as hypoxia um, or decreased perfusion to any portion of the brain can lead to stroke and significant neurologic compromise. So I always make see what their baseline hemoglobin is and have a conversation with the surgeon about what our goals in transfusing may be. Um, at Hopkins, many surgeons prefer to have a hemoglobin greater than 10. This may be different at other institutions. Um, but that's an important consideration to have when looking at the labs. The other thing with electrolytes, um, so some of our patients may be coming in hypokalemic, and this is of particular concern for anything intracranially because we often do hyperventilate our patients to cause some degree of cerebral vasoconstriction um, and help surgical exposure during the surgery. Um, Recognizing that hyperventilation can potentially worsen any hypokalemia and lead to arrhythmias if the patient has that at baseline. So that's another consideration. That's a great point. And just to revisit the physiology there for folks, when you hyperventilate, you get alkalemic, 
when you're alkalemic, your cells are going to say, well, we better shift some of this hydrogen out of the cells into the plasma to counteract that uh, alkalemia. And when the exchange happens there, the potassium goes into the cells and the hydrogen ions come out. Therefore, your plasma level of potassium is going to go down even more. Great. All right. So um, you want to make sure to be careful of that. Check your electrolytes. Check your um, hemoglobin, as you said. Um, what else do you want to make sure you know about? So the other thing that I will say is if your patient has any history of heart failure, I always take a look at the echocardiogram report and the recent cardiology reports. For many of the many of the craniotomies that we do, we typically administer mannitol during the case, which can help with decreasing brain edema. It's an osmotic diuretic and cause fluid shifts um, from extracellular, extravascular spaces intravascularly, and then um, the patient's able to excrete it through the urine. If a patient has significant heart failure, um, this volume... Um, excess within the intravascular component may worsen heart failure. And so that's something that, that I'm always cognizant of. And I have a conversation with the surgical attending as well, because that may mean that either we forego giving mannitol to patients with severe heart failure, or we use a decreased dose in patients who um, have milder degrees of heart failure. Great. So that's definitely important to keep in mind. It's easy to just give the mannitol, I think, reflexively to everybody. But as you say, uh, that can have real effects, especially on a struggling heart. All right. What about imaging? What imaging do you want to get? Um, so oftentimes the surgeons have gotten MRIs and or CAT scans to get a sense of what what intracranial pathology um, is going on. I always take a look at the imaging myself. And this helps me over time, gauge how, have a sense of how difficult it may be for the surgeon to extract the tumor. Does this tumor seem very superficial? Does it seem deep? Is it well circumscribed? Or is it surrounded by significant amounts of edema? Oftentimes, um, malignant tumors, the glioblastomas, will have significant vasogenic edema. And um, that may mean more, more bleeding. It may also mean a more difficult resection from the surgical standpoint, and so we just need to be prepared for that from an anesthesia side of things. Um, a complicated, deep, and highly vascularized glioblastoma may take much more time um, than a straightforward, well-circumscribed meningioma. So let me ask you, how did you learn? A lot of people, I think, look at head CTs, especially MRIs, and don't really know how to extract much information from that. So did you uh, learn how to do that just sort of by looking at a lot of them, or did you actually seek any additional uh, education? How did you feel? get to a point where you feel comfortable, at least at the level you need to get the information you just said? So um, it's an interesting question. So as a resident, I spent a couple months in the neurocritical care unit at Johns Hopkins, and every day we go through the imaging. And so I had, I had a wonderful opportunity to talk to the, to the neurosurgeons and the neurosurgical residents, as well as the critical care attendings there and understand a little bit better the anatomy and looking at the images and understanding what I'm looking at and what changes I'm looking for um, in that way. And then um, as I've done neuroanesthesia fellowship, I've also tried to do my own reading and looking at images and asking questions. But I think looking at a, talking with your surgeons and looking at textbooks and and um, having, a, having a group conversation about what's the pathology and what are we looking at, and that can certainly 
help any, especially young attending or resident, understand better what they're looking at. I think that's the best way to learn. Yeah, that's great advice. And I'll just add and put in a plug for embracing the not knowing and not being afraid to admit you don't know, right? So I think what happens is as a med student, you know, we all are comfortable saying, hey, can someone teach me? I don't know. But then you're a resident or even a young faculty member and you're on one of these, you're a fellow, like you said, and you're on rounds in the NCCU and people are looking at this image and you look around and the whole group is all nodding like they know exactly what's in that image. Chances are, by the way, that most people or at least some of them don't have a clue just like you, but it's very intimidating to say, actually, could someone point that out to me? I don't understand that or I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. Could you explain? But you have to do that or you'll never learn and actually you'll find that other people also have those same questions. Well, and that is something that I try to emphasize to my residents, too, when I work with them, that even as an attending, I'm not afraid to ask for help. I'm not afraid to ask questions. That's the only way that you're going to learn and grow. And I think especially when we're considering neuroanesthesia, that what we do can have such a significant impact on how patients do postoperatively. And so if there's something that you don't know, I encourage all my residents to call me early, have a conversation, ask the questions, either ask me or ask even the surgeons for help if you don't know if you don't know what, what to do in a particular situation. Great. All right. So how about medications? What medications do you think about potentially needing or wanting to know about for these cases? So I look at the what medications the patients have been taking preoperatively, because if they're coming in for some sort of intracranial procedure, oftentimes they came in because they had some sort of neurologic deficit or they may have had a seizure, which led to the diagnosis of um, an intracranial tumor. Um, they may have been started on dexamethasone, which is a potent steroid that we typically use here. They may also be on an anti-epileptic medication to help prevent further seizures. Um, these should absolutely be continued into the perioperative period. Um, and many of these patients will need supplemental steroids in the operating room and potentially anti-epileptics intraoperatively as well. Um, for me personally, I typically also give my patients a gram of Tylenol, assuming there's no liver dysfunction at baseline, because I feel that this can significantly help with um, pain postoperatively from these procedures, along with other medications that we'll supplement with during the procedure. We typically do avoid giving any non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, as they could potentially promote uh, bleeding, and at least at Hopkins, our neurosurgeons are very concerned about that. So we typically avoid giving anything like ibuprofen, Aleve, or Ketorolac during these procedures mm -hmm. or even before. Um, we also, there are other medications that we typically avoid for the intracranial procedures. I typically don't give any gabapentin or midazolam. These can be very sedating and um, we want a very nice emergence from anesthesia. We want to get a really good neurologic exam at the end of the surgery. So I, I don't want anything that's going to be complicating that um, that neurologic exam at the end. So I will typically hold off on giving either of those medications. Um, if I have a patient who is very, very anxious, I will try other maneuvers before giving midazolam. Or if I feel that it's absolutely necessary, then I'll have a conversation with the surgeon before giving anything. Great. It's a really important point. What do you think about for your intraoperative management? And again, uh, I know you're going to get to specific cases, but in general, what are some general intraoperative management points that you think are important? 
So I do have a couple points that um, I typically emphasize to my residents. The first one is making sure the patient is safe during the surgery. Um, we want to make sure the patient's arms and legs are appropriately padded and at all pressure points, as with any surgical procedure, and that the eyes are protected. The head is going to be um, sterilely prepped in preparation for the surgery, and we want to protect the eyes not only from corneal abrasions, but also from any um, surgical preparation fluids that may drip into the eyes as well. Um, we will place some sort of eye protection. Here we place tegaderms. There may be other methods of protecting the eyes at other institutions, but something that will help protect. And then at the end of the case, too, the surgical teams may wrap the head um, with a significant amount of gauze, and we, we want to leave that protective um, padding around the eyes um, before we remove our eye protection for the patients. Um, other special considerations for the craniotomy procedures, oftentimes patients are, the head is stabilized with um, Mayfield pins or other pin system to hold the head stable. Um, I encourage my residents to pay particular attention and be prepared when the surgical team is, is ready to pin. Um, I try to avoid significant hemodynamic changes while pinning is happening. It's, it's a very temporary stimulus, but it is very stimulating to patients even when they're under anesthesia and can cause significant increases in heart rate and blood pressure. And so we typically try to blunt that response somehow. So some providers will give local anesthetic at the pin sites. Others will give a dose of remifentanil or fentanyl or propofol boluses. These are probably going to be very... Um, attending specific and maybe also institution specific. And so I encourage my residents and, and other residents elsewhere to talk with their attendings about what their preferences are in order to avoid that, that sympathetic surge that can happen um, with pinning. Um, those are some of the safety considerations um, that I have. We also don't want patients moving while they're in pins. So, um, here at Hopkins, we typically do give some paralysis for these while patients are in pins to avoid them slipping in pins or, or moving while in pins. Um, if, if that's the practice at your institution, I would also caution that we don't reverse the paralysis while the patients are still in pins for that very reason. If they're starting to emerge from anesthesia and they're starting to cough, they may move and um, cause the pins to slip. So I always tell my residents to wait until the pins are physically out of the head before we um, give our reversal agents. That sounds like a good tip. All right. What else do you think about uh, in the kind of uh, general intraoperative management category? So second thing I think about maintaining hemodynamic stability throughout the procedure. So um, typically our goals are often, uh, we often have very tight parameters for our end tidal CO2 um, and this is often a conversation with the surgical teams. Here, our, our neurosurgical colleagues often request that the end-tidal CO2 is brought down somewhere in the mid-20s um, in order to promote cerebral vasoconstriction and assist with brain relaxation during the procedure. Um, Blood pressure control is also very important, um, especially when the patient is emerging from anesthesia. So not only during the procedure itself is blood pressure control important for um, decreasing the amount of bleeding that can happen in the surgical field, but also when a patient is emerging from anesthesia, the, the surgery is done and the skull has been, the, the bone flap has been placed back in the cranial vault and the, and the skin is being sutured or stapled. Um, and we don't want any any 
further bleeding into that enclo very tight enclosed space. And so blood pressure control is, is forefront in my mind as the patient is emerging. Um, my goals are typically to get the blood the systolic blood pressure less than 160 millimeters of mercury. I will often have some sort of vasoactive agent drawn up, such as labetalol. Um, I find that that works very well in helping to control the blood pressure as the patient is emerging from anesthesia. And how much labetalol, on average, what do you? What is your go-to push dose of labetalol? I'll typically start with 10 to 15 milligrams. Um, if that doesn't work, then I'll double my dose and go up to 20. Um, if I find that after subsequent doses, labetalol isn't working, I might try hydralazine or some other maneuver. I, I do find that once once we pull out the endotracheal tube, the, the pressures do come down a little bit. Um, it also depends on how you've been maintaining anesthesia for the patient too. But, um, but for me, typically, um, I don't have to go beyond either labetalol or hydralazine to bring the blood pressure down. Great. Um, another thing that I think about is fluid management and resuscitation during, um, during these procedures. So oftentimes a basic straightforward craniotomy is not going to be losing substantial amounts of blood, at least here at Hopkins. Um, it, some of that is going to be dependent on the skill of the surgeons that you're operating with as well. And I would certainly encourage all of the listeners to, to have a, have an understanding of their own surgeons at their institution. Um, we talked about hemoglobin goals earlier and discussed that with the surgical team during your timeout, what the goals are, um, and keeping track of how much blood you think the patient has lost during the surgery, um, keeping up with blood draws and um, following the hemoglobin as, as needed. Um, typically, at least here at Hopkins, we use normal saline for the intracranial procedures. This has a higher osmolality than um, something like lactated ringers does and less, um, less relative water. The sodium load does help to draw fluid from the extravascular space, draw it intravascular compartment, and again, helps with brain relaxation and decreasing brain edema. Um, and so we typically will also try to slightly fluid restrict at the start of the case, keep the patients a little bit on the drier side, but then um, as we administer mannitol during the surgery, and we talked a little bit about that earlier too with the osmotic diuresis, um, that is over time going to cause a diuresis and cause the patients to become more hypovolemic. And so then I will typically replete or replace that loss one-to-one -one with um, normal saline crystallite as the case progresses. Great. Let me ask you, sometimes when surgeons are retracting the dura, patients will get bradycardic. Is there um, a standardized approach you'd like to take to deal with that? So that's a great point. Um, and I have seen this, and I've certainly talked to my residents about it. This can happen um, with dry retraction. It can be a vagal response if the surgeon is operating on an acoustic neuroma and there's compression of the brain stem. Patients can also become um, bradycardic. In that case, they may also become hypertensive. Um, typically, the response is to alert the surgical team that that's happening and they need to stop that stimulation, um, talk to the surgeons and determine what needs to be done at that point. If I'm really concerned about the heart rate um, and I feel that in um, pharmacologic intervention is necessary, I'll typically give 0.1 or 0.2 milligrams of glycopyrrolate. Um, going back to the um, pharmacology, glycopyrrolate doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, and so I prefer to use that over atropine. Um, 
However, there are some, there are other attendings who will use atropine instead because it has a faster onset, recognizing that it, it can cross the blood-brain barrier and potentially complicate your neurologic exam at the end of the case. But that's, that's something to discuss with your attending as well ahead of time. Great. All right. Let's talk about pain control. What do you think of uh, when you're thinking about controlling the pain in these patients? So I think there's a number of different things that we can do to help control pain for these kinds of surgeries. Um, I typically use fentanyl throughout the operation. Um, some some attendings will run a remifentanyl infusion during the case. Some will run a sufentanyl infusion. Um, these are all short, at, relatively short-acting opioids. We don't want to be using something that's going to be very long-acting, um, but we want something that's going to be helping to keep the patient comfortable. And certainly doing a scalp block can be very helpful in that way with, um, with a relatively high concentration of local anesthetic. I'll use either half percent bupivacaine or 0.75% bupivacaine and do my scalp block. And, and typically patients will wake up very comfortable and um, you can sort of minimize opioids in that way for the patient too. Okay, great. Um, so if you can do a scalp block, which uh, is going to be probably easier to see than to describe, but essentially injecting local anesthetic into the scalp. Um, and so you're going to make sure that Ideally, you don't need a ton of opioid during the procedure if you do that. All right. So how about you had mentioned before, you really want these patients to wake up and you want them to wake up as crisp as possible so that you can get a neuro exam immediately. How do you try to do that? So um, one way that, that I have tried to do that is um, coming up with a plan that that I feel comfortable with and that I know from experience works well. Some institutions will use a total IV anesthetic technique and then understanding when to turn off the, it's usually a propofol infusion, when to turn that off can be very helpful. Um, if you're using an inhalational technique, recognizing that if you are maintaining on an inhalational anesthetic, such as isoflurane, sevoflurane, or desflurane, that you do need to turn that off um, pretty early. When I'm using isoflurane, I know that once the dura is closed, I'll typically turn that off, and um, I find that that works very well in terms of timing. But you do need to you do need to know your surgeons and how quickly they're going to be finishing the case. Um, but our goals in in talking about that is a relatively rapid emergence and getting the patient back to their neurologic baseline. So when the surgery is done and the dressings are on, you want that patient to wake up relatively quickly. Um, I will say that. Um, for any of the residents out there. Once you come up with an anesthetic plan with your attending and something that you both agreed on, don't change the plan unless you've talked to the attending about it. Um, again, for me, as the patient is emerging, I tend not to give any doses of propofol towards the end because if you do and your patient is slow to wake up, you don't know if that's because of the extra propofol bolus or if it's because the patient's having a seizure or some other intracranial pathology is, is going on. So if you feel that you need to change your plan for any reason, talk to your attending about that. Great. All right. You've mentioned that there are some medications that are used frequently, maybe uh, uniquely in craniotomy surgery. Um, you want to just say a few words about some of those? Sure. So we, we've talked a little bit about mannitol um, in that it's an osmotic diuretic, can cause cerebral vasoconstriction and decreases cerebral um, 
volume, allowing for improved surgical exposure. Typically, we'll use doses between half to one gram per kilo given slowly um, IV. I'll typically infuse this over 15 or 20 minutes unless the surgical team feels that it's important for it to be infused quicker. Um, I, some surgeons will also request less, less mannitol than that to be given. So I usually wait for our group timeout before, um, before administering um, mannitol in any form. And that, that's true for any of the medications that we're going to talk about that are specific for craniotomy procedures, as every neurosurgeon may have a different perspective. Um, if you do give mannitol during a case, be sure, as we talked about, to monitor the urine output and um, definitely replace their urine output if you feel that's necessary with crystalloid to avoid significant dehydration. Mannitol, for some patients, um, can cause a pretty brisk and robust um, diuresis, and so you may notice that your patient can easily urinate one to two liters um, with the dose of mannitol that you've given, and that, that can be dependent on how much you've given, too, so just be cognizant of that. Um, this may not be a problem everywhere, but I know that at Hopkins, sometimes our, our mannitol solutions can become crystallized if, if, they're, if they're cold, especially. If you do find that you have a bag that, that has been crystallized, what we typically do here is return it to the pharmacy um, and get a new one that's not crystallized. You don't want to give that to the patient. It certainly happened to me as a resident at UCSF, so not not only <laughs> unique to Hopkins. Um, other medications that we consider, so we talked about uh, dexamethasone or some sort of steroid that the patients may be on preoperatively. Typically, we will give some sort of glucocorticoid um, steroid um, during, during the surgery to help decrease brain edema. Um, here, we often give 10 milligrams, but some of our surgeons are starting to change their practices. And so that, again, that's one of those medications to have a conversation with the, with the surgeon. One of the important considerations with steroids is to keep track of their blood glucose levels, as hyperglycemia can be very common. Um, whether well, they've been on the steroid or, or not. And so I will typically check blood glucose levels. Once they start getting above 160, I'll, have, I'll let the surgical team know and I'll have a conversation with them about starting an insulin drip or maybe just insulin boluses to get the, get the blood glucose levels under control. We, we do know that um, significant hyperglycemia can have detrimental effects on neurologic outcomes for these patients. And so tight glycemic control is, is very important. Um, and as we mentioned earlier too, um, seizure prophylaxis is, is very important for these patients as well. They can, um, if your patient is slow to wake up, again, you don't know if it's from medications or, or is the patient having a seizure. It may not be a grand mal seizure. Their presentation may be that they're just not waking up very well. Um, so it's it's always a possibility anytime there's an intracranial procedure that's that's happened. So oftentimes we'll administer an anti um, an anti-epileptic. Um, at Hopkins, we will frequently use levetiracetam or also known as Keppra, um, typically infuse it slowly over about 15 minutes or so. Great. All right. So those are important kind of unique medications to keep in mind. Let's move on and t have you actually tell us about some specific <laughs> cases. And I think that'll be nice for people to hear your approach and the general approach here um, to doing these cases. So um, why don't we start with just an open craniotomy for a tumor resection? What do you do specifically in these cases? 
Sure. So as we talked a little bit about in the start of the podcast, that these procedures um, are often done with the patient either in the supine or prone position, depending on where the tumor is located. Um, they can also be done in park bench or in the sitting position, um, depend, again, depending on where the tumor is located and how the surgeon chooses to access the tumor. Um, the anesthetic... My anesthetic plan is very similar, whether the, I'm, I'm going to go through either supine or prone positioning. I'm not really going to be talking about the sitting position um, today, but that that has its own set of challenges from an anesthetic standpoint, um, specifically that there is a higher risk of venous air embolism with a sitting intracranial um, craniotomy. But for the sitting or prone positioning, um, my anesthetic plan is very similar um, I typically pre-medicate with one gram of Tylenol unless there's a specific contraindication, significant liver disease. Um, usually we'll do general anesthesia for these cases unless it's specifically listed as an awake procedure. Um, and I'll be talking a little bit about um, some of the considerations for awake craniotomies a little bit later. Um, we can do these with either an inhalational anesthetic technique, a TIVA technique or some sort of combination of inhalational and IV anesthetics, depending on your attending's preference. Um, it's important to recognize how our inhalational anesthetics and the IV anesthetics can, can affect the cerebral um, metabolism and, and hemodynamics um, and whether they're doing neuromonitoring. Um, and that will probably be addressed in, in, a, in another discussion. Um, having a conversation with your attending about best practices in terms of what, what do you need for um, IV or central access during the case, um, understanding whether you're understanding how your surgeons operate and what you may need is going to be something that your attending will probably have a good sense of. Um, here at Hopkins, we typically will have good peripheral access and we'll place an arterial line to closely monitor hemodynamics during the case. Um, if you feel that you're going to be needing to use high-dose vasoactive agents or you're concerned about a venous air embolism in some way, it may be reasonable to have a conversation about placing a central line for the case too. Um, oftentimes, if that's the case, we'll place a subclavian line to um, help avoid the obstruction to venous outflow that can happen with uh, internal jugular vein um, cannulation. Uh, many providers here will run an infusion of some sort of analgesic during the case. This can be remifentanil, fentanyl, sufentanil. Um, it all depends on what what your attending's preferences are, what their convention um, is for running those during the cases. Some providers will also do scalp blocks, and as I mentioned, they can be great analgesics and help decrease your opioid requirements during the surgery. Um, I typically avoid long-acting agents um, I usually don't don't use ketamine for these cases, even in, in chronic pain patients. I would prefer to do a scalp block over giving ketamine because it it can have some dissociative effects, and and if the patient has some hallucinations or dissociation at the end of the surgery, again, you want to you want to make sure that it's not your medications that um, is is causing that that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I also have, and we discussed some of these medications, I often have some sort of anti-epileptic, a steroid, antibiotics, and mannitol ready to go in the room. Um, and again, wait for time out before giving any of these. Um, here we maintain paralysis while a patient is in pins so that the patient doesn't move during, during the surgery. Um, and again, never reverse the paralysis when the patient is still in pins. 
Um, and I also frequently check labs throughout the case. Specifically, I'm looking at the hemoglobin for their oxygen carrying capacity and the blood glucose levels and certainly correcting any other electrolyte abnormalities. Um, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but no matter what anesthetic you're using, talk to your attending about when to turn off the anesthetics and analgesics. If you're running a fentanyl infusion, that needs to be turned off much sooner than something like remifentanil, which is which gets metabolized very much much faster, um, or sufentanil. So so just be cognizant um, of that. Um, most of our craniotomy procedures will go to our neurointensive care unit um, postoperatively as well for at least overnight monitoring. Great. So that was kind of an overview of open cranial for tumor resection. Um, are there open craniotomies done for other indications? Sure. So, um, so some of the some of what we do are open cranies for brain biopsies. If there's a suspicious looking lesion that the surgical teams either don't feel that they can get the whole thing, or they they um, um, aren't quite sure what what it is, they might be. Um, taking a very specific biopsy. These are often a little bit less involved than the large crani- open craniotomy tumor for tumor resections. Um, the incisions are typically smaller and the surgical team is sampling tissue rather than carefully trying to resect maybe a larger lesion. Um, for us, typically these cases are a little bit faster and blood loss should be even less than with a large tumor resection. Um, you'll probably still want pretty good peripheral access and depending on what um, what the surgical team feels that they're going to be doing. You may or may not need, excuse me, an arterial line for hemodynamic monitoring. Um, other procedures that um, we we have our brand new residents do are things like microvascular decompression. These are performed for patients who have trigeminal neuralgia, who have perhaps failed other therapies, either medical or surgical. Um, many of these patients have had rhizotomies in the past. They have chronic pain from their trigeminal neuralgia. They may have difficulty opening their mouths um, as a result of pain. And so that may be a consideration when you're considering your airway exam. Um, they sh- all these patients, I typically have them continue their chron- any chronic pain medications that they're taking. Continue that in the perioperative period to assist your analgesia intraoperatively and postoperatively. Um, the goal, of course, is to make the pain better after the procedure. Um, some of these patients may still have some pain um, even into the first couple of days after surgery. Um, my plan, my basic anesthetic plan is very similar to the craniotomies. Um, here at Hopkins, I typically don't place an arterial line for these patients, but at other institutions, that may be the common practice. Um, endonasal skull base surgery is a different kind of um, procedure that we do, where it's it's not a craniotomy specifically, but um, these are often done for pituitary tumors, and they're approached through the endonasal route. So there's still an intracranial procedure, um, just without removing... Um, they're, they're coming up from the skull base rather than from up above. Um, we do these, um, typically there will be two different surgical teams involved for these. There will be an otolaryngology team um, who gets the initial surgical exposure and then the neurosurgical team will come in to um, resect the tumor and then the um, otolaryngology team will finish out the case. Um, some people manage these cases much as an open craniotomy, but there are some special considerations. So um, with after we intubate, we typically want to make sure the endotracheal tube is away from the surgical field. And this may mean 
um, taping the tube off to the left side of the mouth rather than the, the right side. Um, here at Hopkins, I don't typically place a bite block for, for these patients as it, it can get into the surgical team's way. I always place an orogastric tube in order to help remove gastric contents. Blood from the surgical um, field can drip down the back of the throat and end up in the stomach. Um, and so we, we definitely want to get that out of the patient's stomach because blood in the stomach can be very um, emetogenic as well. And we don't, the special, big special consideration for these cases um, is that we, we want a very smooth wake up for these patients. They can't have any positive pressure ventilation after surgery. We don't want them to have significant nausea. Um, we also want to make sure that they're not coughing on the endotracheal tube as they're waking up. And so creating an anesthetic that is carefully tailored um, to help meet some of those goals. So the way I typically approach my anesthetic, I'll use half MAC of an inhalational anesthetic, either sevoflurane or desflurane are, are my preferences. And I will run a propofol infusion as well as a remifentanyl infusion and um, titrating those off carefully towards the end of the case, giving several different antiemetics. Um, and I find that if, if I wake the patient up on a very low dose remifentanyl infusion, we can avoid, we can have them spontaneously ventilating, avoiding the coughing on the endotracheal tube, um, pull out your endotracheal tube and make sure that they're still spontaneously ventilating without applying positive pressure. Um, those are some of the um, special considerations that I have for, for those surgeries in particular. And maintaining a very smooth anesthetic throughout can be very important. Great. Um, um, so that's the skull-based surgery, and I think some of the things you pointed out there that are key to keep in mind, you know, really, uh, I guess true of any of these, is to avoid that bucking. Remifentanil, as you said, great for that in, in any case, be it neuroanesthesia or other, uh, in that you can really run it uh, at relatively high dose up until the end, and it'll go away fairly quickly. It has really no increase in context-sensitive halftime uh, over the course of a, a, of a case, which is really nice. Um, what other kind of cases should we talk about? Um, so we can certainly talk about uh, briefly um, neurointerventional embolizations. This is not open craniotomies per se and kind of getting out of the scope a little bit, but I can briefly talk about that before talking about some of the considerations for the awake craniotomies. Um, so the neurointerventional embolizations, mostly used for intracranial aneurysms um, here at Hopkins at least, um, they're typically minimally invasive procedures done under fluoroscopy, um, and a wire is typically guided up through the femoral or radial artery. Um, but the goals for these are a little bit different than for some of the other um, intracranial procedures. Um, patients do need to be very still for these procedures as the proceduralists are threading their wires um, very carefully into tiny arteries in the brain. So we do, avoid, we do give general anesthesia for these and we'll typically paralyze the patients for these surgeries as well. Um, we want to avoid significant increases in blood pressure, which could put strain on an unsecured aneurysm. So typically, as I'm inducing anesthesia, I'll have esmolol and labetalol drawn up, sometimes nicardipine too, depending on how large the aneurysm is, to carefully control the blood pressure with my induction. And I usually consider having a video laryngoscope as well to help decrease the sympathetic stimulation from laryngoscopy that can occur during intubation. Um, we want to monitor the blood pressure very carefully, and I'll typically have an arterial line and good peripheral access in for these procedures, as I do for, for my open intracranial procedures. 
Um, you want to carefully control the patient's blood pressure throughout the case, avoiding significant spikes in blood pressure as the, as the case proceeds, too, given that the aneurysm is still unsecured until it's been appropriately embolized. Um, the procedure itself is not very stimulating, and patients may become hypotensive from our anesthetic, so I usually have a phenylephrine drip ready to go for these cases as well to maintain adequate perfusion pressures. Um, sometimes the surgical teams will also request that we give heparin and communicating with the procedural team is very important about how much and, and when to when to give that. Um, and now I'll, I'll briefly talk about awake craniotomies and how they differ from some of the other, uh, for, for tumor and how they differ from some of the other craniotomies that we do. Um, the awake cranies, we typically do them when there is a tumor that abuts a speech center, and if the surgeons are particularly concerned um, that resecting the tumor may somehow impair the patient's ability to um, that they may that the patient may develop some sort of aphasia postoperatively, um, that's often the reason why we do them here at Hopkins. My, there, there are many different ways that you could do these procedures. Um, the ultimate goal is to have the patient awake and able to communicate during the tumor resection itself. Some institutions and some providers will just provide sedation with maybe dexmedetomidine at the start of the case. Some providers use um, remifentanil as well. Um, I prefer to get the patient um, under general anesthesia with an LMA to start. I, I put in my IVs and my arterial line. We'll do a good scalp block for the, we'll, and we'll inject local at the pin sites. We'll do a very good scalp block, make sure that the patient is um, comfortable when the surgical team makes their initial surgical incision. And then typically once the bone flap has been removed, um, the surgical team will communicate with us that it's time to turn off our anesthetics. We'll turn off our anesthetics, wake the patient up, pull out the LMA. I typically have a nasal cannula in place to still provide some oxygen to the patient. But then um, either a neurologist will be in the room or it may be up to the anesthesia provider to talk with the patient throughout the patient may be asked to repeat numbers or letters, or some of our surgeons will just chat with the patients throughout the procedure, and and that may be something that the anesthesiologist gets involved, excuse me, gets involved with too. Um, the the considerations that you have for these procedures can be very similar to your concerns and considerations with any other craniotomy. So patients can have seizures, they can have emesis. Um, they might start to get uncomfortable from the, from being in one position for a long period of time. And these are all things that we need to be cognizant of as we do these cases. So typically the surgical teams will have ice cold saline to um, pour onto the brain if the patient starts to have a seizure. Um, I'll typically work in several antiemetics so that the patient isn't moving too much or isn't having too much nausea for um, while they're still in pins. Um, the patient may need to be repositioned slightly too for comfort. Um, there are other considerations, but I believe that's maybe getting out of the scope of the discussion for today. Great. I think that's a really nice overview. Um, well, Alison, this is great. I think this is really useful for people who um, want a refresher or who are um, just starting off and approaching their first neuroanesthetics. So thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us through it. Well, thank you for having me here. This has been great. All right, that was fantastic. I think really useful stuff. 
but let us know what you think. Go to ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment that everyone can learn from. Let us know, how do you approach these anesthetics? Do you do neuroanesthesia? Is your approach a little different or the same? What do you think are some good tips and tricks for everyone to know? You can see all the episodes uh, on the website, and you can also join our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner. You can also, if you are so inclined and you're a fan of the show, go to iTunes, where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Special thanks, as always, to those who already are patrons of the show, to Brian Park for the amazing outlines that he makes for our episodes, and, of course, to Allison for coming on the show. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Allison Russo, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember... What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.